Welcome to Interviews with Innocence, a podcast about spirituality, consciousness, and exploring the wisdom our children bring into this world. I believe that our very young children are our greatest teachers. After all, they're the masters of living in the present moment, bubbling in unconditional love, enjoying the messiness of life, and curious about the universe in all its dimensions. The pure essence that young children exhibit lives within all of us. My hope is that these interviews will help us discover, embrace, and connect with the sacred core of childhood that resides within each of our hearts. I am your host, Marla Hughes. Today, I am so excited to have Andrew B. Newberg, MD, on the show. Dr. Newberg is currently the research director at the Marcus Institute of Integrative Health at Thomas Jefferson University and Hospital in Philadelphia. He is also a professor in the Department of Integrative Medicine and Nutritional Sciences. He is board certified in internal medicine and nuclear medicine. Dr. Newberg has been particularly involved in the study of mystical and religious experiences a field he refers to as neurotheology. He has published over 250 peer-reviewed articles and chapters on brain function, brain imaging, and the study of religious and mystical experiences. He is the co-author of the new book entitled The Rabbi's Brain, Mystics, Moderns, and the Science of Jewish Thinking. He is also co-author of the best-selling books, How God Changes Your Brain and Why God Won't Go Away, Brain Science and the Biology of Belief. He is also co-author of How Enlightenment Changes Your Brain, and that's what we're going to be talking about a little bit today, and the new science of transformation. And you have written a lot, have a lot of books, and he has presented his work at scientific and religious meetings throughout the world, has appeared on Dr. Oz, Star, not Star Trek, Star Talk. <laughs> With Neil deGrasse Tyson, Good Morning America, Nightline, CNN, ABC, World News, as well in movies, What the Bleep Do We Know, and others that you can read about in the show notes. So welcome to the program. So do you go by Andy or Andrew or Doctor or? Uh, Andy or Andrew are fine. Okay, great. And, And by the way, while I was not on Star Trek, we did do a brain scan of uh, the actor Zachary Quinto, who plays Mr. Spock on the new Star Trek movies. You did? Yeah. So he was doing... Was he in contemplative practice or anything while you did it, or...? It was a very interesting study. We did a little... uh, He was doing something for a new television program um, he was doing In Search Of, which is, for those of... Uh, of our age, remember that program back in That's, the 80s yes. with, with, with the original Mr. Spock with Leonard Nimoy. And uh, it, was a, uh, it was doing something on um, uh, pain and, um, and how we perceive pain. So we were, and then how meditation might be useful uh, to, to sort of help people deal with pain. We had a Shaolin monk who, like, they don't feel any pain. Um, we had him. Uh, Zachary Quinto, and we had um, a gentleman who had something called the congenital uh, insensitivity to pain, or CIP, where they actually literally don't have the neurons for pain perception. And we scanned each of their brains while doing kind of a painful uh, task. Uh, You sort of, you put your hand in ice water, and, um, and then we scanned their brains, and then we worked on them trying to 
trying to change um, how their brain responded. And it was, it was quite fascinating. I mean, it, uh, Zachary Quinto's brain, you know, lit up a lot with the pain. And then when we did ask him to try to relax and, and use a little bit of a meditation, he was able to minimize it. Um, the guy who had uh, the, the insensitivity to pain um, had uh, some activity in the sensory areas because he can feel stuff. He just yeah. doesn't feel the pain. And then the Shaolin monk didn't actually change at all between feeling pain or, or feeling nothing. So um, Oh, it, it was, was compared to a monk. Oh yeah. my wow. So, that must have been a really a really <laughs> cool afternoon. <laughs> well let's start at the beginning. I know that you were a really curious child. And I know you've told this story so many times, and I so appreciate <laughs> you talking about it again. I always remember it. So yes, yes. And that kind of really began your journey of looking at the human brain, of course, as you got older and in the area of neurotheology. So can you tell us about that? Sure, sure. Um, well, yeah, you know, as you said, I mean, I, I was always very um, uh, inquisitive, always encouraged to ask a lot of questions about things. And, um, and I think, you know, one of the things that was very disturbing, I guess, is if that's the right word, um, and maybe even more so today, uh, is, you know, how do people have such different perspectives on what reality is all about? I mean, it started with the idea of why do people have different religious beliefs? Um, you know, why are some people Jewish and some people Catholic and some people Muslim and so forth? Uh, and of course, you know, when you look around today and, and looking at Republicans and Democrats and, and such, you know, such opposition, you know, yeah. how is it that we're all looking at, you know, COVID or we're all looking at the economy or we're all looking at, you know, whatever you want to pick and we come away with such different perspectives. And that was always kind of, I couldn't figure that out. So uh, I figured, well, I got to start by trying to understand what's going on with the human brain. That's the part of ourselves that interprets the information coming in from the world and helps us to figure out what, what's real and what isn't real. And, uh, and I kind of went down that path for a while and, and really tried to explore the science and learn about the brain. Um, and then when I was in college, uh, I began to really look at um, other aspects of that question. I realized that science, as wonderful as science is, and, and I, as I always think it is, um, there's certain limitations that it has. And, and in particular, it has limitations in terms of our consciousness and our perceptions of reality. And so I got into studying um, various philosophical perspectives and spiritual perspectives, religious and spiritual perspectives. And then all of this stuff was kind of swirling around as I got into medical school and had the wonderful uh, fortune of meeting two mentors who were just fantastic with, with me. And one of them was uh, in the imaging world. And so we started to do brain scans, uh, as you mentioned in the introduction, of all different kinds of disorders and Parkinson's and Alzheimer's and things like that. Uh, and then the other uh, gentleman was a psychiatrist who had been exploring the questions about the relationship between our brain and spirituality and religion uh, even longer than I had, or at least you know going back a number of years. Uh, and, um, and so we started talking about that and how we can start to think about it. And then at one point, the, uh, the proverbial light bulb went off and I said, well, gee, if we're scanning the brains of people with depression, with Alzheimer's, why can't we scan the brains of people with various religious and spiritual beliefs or doing different practices? And, and that was what in many ways really propelled neurotheology as a field uh, forward where we began to understand what that relationship is and not just ha have the ability to talk about it, 
uh, more theoretically, but have the actual data to be able to say, well, this is what we see is happening, and then use that information to inform where we go, you know, how we ask new questions, um, how we think about uh, practical applications, um, you know, more esoteric questions and so forth, and uh, and that's really where where we have continued to go, and it's been a fantastic journey with, um, uh, you know, we've really just scratched the surface. There's just many, many more questions for us to continue to explore. Yes. Wow. Well, well thank, we're going to jump to what you found in, in those scans, but um, I know that you talk about in chapter one, I think it in um, the enlightenment, what's it called? <laughs> your enlightenment book. How enlightenment changes your brain? Yes, yes. And um, that the brain is a, the wonder, here, here it is, here it is. The happy prison of the brain. Right. And then you go on, and I find this is really intriguing. You go on to kind of explain it a little bit about Plato and the cave. Because right. I love that. I love that. And because it's so, it's so perfect. Right. So um, can you just talk about the prison a little bit? Sure. Well, you know, again, as, as I started to think about these questions and think about how our brain processes information, I, I fairly suddenly, you know, or fairly quickly realized that um, that our brain is kind of, you know, we're inside of our brain. And that in many ways becomes a prison for us because we, you know, we're never truly sure if what we think and feel on the inside, what we perceive on the inside is really accurate with what is out there in the world itself. So if I see an automobile, uh, if I see a friend of mine, if I'm answering an email, I, I do all that with the presumption that my brain is providing this information to me in some kind of accurate way. And, and which is a very reasonable assumption to make, but nonetheless is still an assumption because there's never really a way of getting outside of your brain and looking at the world and say, okay, you know, yes, there's a red automobile there. Yes, I'm perceiving a red automobile. They match up. That must be the real, you know, I'm perceiving the real reality. So we are, we are sort of forever trapped within our own brain, trapped within our own consciousness, uh, you know, looking out at the world and trying to interpret that world uh, as best as we can. And of course, um, you know, the more I have thought about it, the, the more, uh, confined we really are. I mean, we literally have access to about, uh, I, I did a calculation, a uh, back of the envelope calculation, I think it's about 10 to the minus 67, you know, percent uh, of what's out there in the universe. I mean, you know, we have access to what's in our room, uh, what's, you know, immediately around us. We don't know what's going on in, uh, you know, in China and on the moon and another galaxy. I mean, uh, uh, and yet somehow, and this is why I call it the happy prison, uh, which is that somehow our brain kind of convinces us that the perception that we do have of the world is right and, and that we should be okay with it and we should feel comfortable that we, we get the world and we understand the world relatively well. Um, and so it makes us, you know, we, we kind of go about our happy lives, getting up in the morning and, and going to work and doing the things that we need to do all with the massive assumption that that we're somehow really you know convinced that we know what's going on and we really don't but uh so so that's really the trap you know and um and that was something that certainly you know i continued to explore myself uh personally which is you know how do how do we start to break this down 
And, uh, and, and, and in how enlightenment changes your brain, and this maybe finishes the answer to your first question about you know, my, what, what I've kind of gone through in my own path, um, I began to take this approach where I said, well, look, if, if there's anything that I'm not sure about, um, I'll say, well, I, 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 I said, I'll, I'll put this into what I call the realm of doubt, you know, which is just, it meant, I, it didn't mean it was wrong, didn't mean it was right, it just meant I wasn't sure. And uh, later came to find that this was actually, uh, which I was very happy to hear, <laughs> was um, it was very similar to the the, the path that uh, Rene Descartes had taken. So I thought I was in good company. Um, and uh, and but you know, as I went through this process, um, I, I began to really reflect on how much I could truly know about um, my perceptions of the world. Uh, you know, we we wrote a book called Why We Believe What We Believe, and we really kind of deconstruct. The ways in which we come to our beliefs, the, the the many mistakes and flaws and limitations that our brain has in putting that on us. So, so so you know, I began to realize that our perceptions, our our ideas, our cognitive processes, uh, all of these things are really you know thrown into this realm of doubt. And um, uh, and it was actually in between my um, the summer between me- uh, college and medical school where I thought well you know, I really got to figure out an answer here before I start this whole medical thing. And, um, and as I went into that, I, I started doing a lot of, you know, reflection and contemplation on these questions and ultimately had this experience that I don't know any other um, way of defining or, or talking about other than to call it infinite doubt. Um, it was really a, a moment where not only did I realize that, you know, everything was doubted, but, but that even, the fact that everything was doubted was doubted, you know, and it just yes. was this infinite regression. Um, and it was a, fa- you know, it was an incredible experience when I talked to my um, uh, my co-author uh, Mark Waldman about this at one point. He said, "Well, that must have been like the worst experience ever because here you are trying to find an answer, and then you kind of come to this infinite doubt that you're never going to get an answer to anything." And I thought about that for a moment. I said, well, you know, but the the interesting thing was was that it was actually in many ways one of the most calming. Uh, most wonderful experiences that I had ever had. And it, it did certain very fascinating things in terms of my perceptions of, of the world in the sense that, you know, everything kind of became one as part of this doubt, um, which was interesting. Um, and uh, and again, there was this sort of uh, universality to it. Um, there, there was a oneness of, of all things in that context. And then that was also part of what then, um, you know, further stimulated me to say, well, maybe I should understand what other people's experiences are when people say they have a spiritual experience, a mystical experience, and they say everything feels, you know, at one. Um, what does that mean? And how is that similar to my own personal experiences? And, and how can we start to think about what's going on in the brain with regard to them? But, but that was all part, uh, part and parcel of, of my, this journey that, that I consider myself to be on, which is this kind of combined scientific as well as contemplative or spiritual uh, process in trying to answer those questions. And I haven't gotten to the answer yet, but I <laughs> always like to tell everyone that I'll, I'll make sure I let everyone know if I ever figure it out. So, Well, it's interesting when you talk about infinity, I, I immediately think about a lecture I heard at um, the Science and Non-Duality Conference, and you were probably there. You were probably hit me speaking. But... Um, and it was about, it was a mathematician and he was just talking about how when you get that high in math, you know, the degrees that it, then math just is, goes out into the infin- infinity. 
you know, and call that doubt because we don't know where it, but I, I just think that's, I, I, that really touched me when he said that. So it kind of reminds me of that. And another thing you talked about, you just mentioned it now, but people's belief, um, belief systems. And after I read, read about that in your book, and I've listened to some of your interviews, it's made me look at people different especially in all this controversy going on today and and really actually affecting friendships. Yeah. I just, you know, I just will look at someone and think, you know, it's what they were raised to believe and some genetic component possibly, and maybe past lives component. And and of course people can change their mind, but it really takes the kind of the triggering out of the conversation, you know, and, and you can listen more and, yeah. Well, no. I, I, you, that, what you just said is, to me is is, is a fundamentally uh, essential aspect of neurotheology, and, and right. in many ways, one of the biggest take-home messages that I have learned, which is just what you said, which is that, you know, uh, that that all of us are kind of in the same boat. We're all in this happy prison, and we're all looking out at the world, and we bring our genetics, our upbringing, what our parents told us, whether we had brothers and sisters that were wonderful or abusive, you know, right. our friends, teachers, uh, what we've read, you know, everything kind of comes to the moment we are today. And with so many, you know, almost literally infinite variables in that context as well, it's really not a surprise that people come to different conclusions. And, and it's interesting to me that, you know, so oftentimes we think that even the people who agree with us agree with us in the same exact way. And, you know, I always think, you know, we should canvas, you know, a church, for example, and ask the hundred people who are in church, what do you believe? What do you believe about God? What do you believe about your, what is the most important part of your religion? My guess is that you're probably going to get about a hundred different answers. And, and, and if you, you know, if there's a seven and a half billion people in the world, um, I always say there's seven and a half billion religions and, and seven and a half billion political systems um, or parties that, you know, none of us look at the world exactly the same. Now, obviously there's, there's degrees to that. And, uh, and so everyone who considers themselves a Democrat clearly is different than somebody who might consider themselves a Republican, oh, right. but there's also a, conti- you know, it's not like, over here and over here that there is a whole continuum and but but again i think you know the most important part of all of that is one i mean it it is to me almost silly for any of us to feel like we know the answer right because again yeah. given given what i just said i mean if, if we're if we have access to like 0.000001% of everything that there is there's no way that we know that we're what we think is is right or wrong and and you know there is so much evidence to point to the ways in which our brain makes mistakes and and never bothers to tell us when it makes those mistakes so um so, and and i think that the the flip side is what you said also which is that um ultimately i hope that this kind of information opens people up to the idea that okay, you know, I get it. I understand why this person doesn't believe things the way I do or doesn't look at the presidential candidates the way I do or look at God or religion in the same way I do. And that's okay. You know, it, it, it makes sense because their brain put that, you know, came up with the answers that it came up with just as mine did. And we just came up with different answers. And it doesn't inherently mean that one is right or wrong or better or worse. Um, it's what what works for each one of us. And, um, 
And so, yeah, I mean, to me, that is always one of the big things that I have learned, which is this profound uh, appreciation and respect for what people's beliefs actually are and, and how they utilize them and, and make that a part of their lives. And how that trickles down, you know, and, and just to go off topic for us, well, it's not really off topic. And the beauty of teaching that to our children, you know, yeah. that just because someone disagrees doesn't mean that it's wrong. And and what a beautiful life. I mean, we have to wait until we're, you know, how old to, to get that and learn that. And what right. a great lesson that would be for our children. So let's talk a little bit about these scams that you do. And I know you um, first started with, with people in prayer and in meditation. And then you went on to brain scans with Brazilian mediums. I'd like to know why they were Brazilian. <laughs> You were just down there visiting. <laughs> because they were from Brazil. <laughs> good point. Good point. <laughs> and um, when they were in a meditative state, so when you talk about something seems to take over, but what were the changes in the scans that you've seen in the frontal, the parietal, and, and all of that? Well, um, you know, again, in terms of sort of like the big take-home messages, um, what we have observed on our brain scans is usually a very complex pattern of activity that goes on when people are engaged in different religious and spiritual practices. And that really shouldn't be a surprise to anyone. I mean, anyone who's gone to a church or gone to uh, some spiritual community or anything like that, there are so many different elements to any of those beliefs and any of those practices. There are emotional processes, there's cognitive elements, um, there's the things that people experience. So to me, I mean, it absolutely makes sense that you would engage the emotional areas of the brain, the cognitive areas of the brain, the experiential areas of the brain. And so there isn't just one part of our brain that turns on when we start to meditate or, or whatever. It, it really is this very complex uh, network pattern uh, of, of activity that occurs. Now, how one accesses that and how one you know activates that is different depending on what one is doing. So if one is doing some fairly active prayer and maybe dancing around or doing something like that, I mean, that's going to be a very different kind of brain state than someone who is sitting calmly meditating on a candle, for example. Um, so, you know, and that could be different than somebody who is doing uh, some type of movement meditation like Tai Chi, for example. Um, so, you know, on one hand, we see a lot of different changes going on in the brain and, and we have been able to uh, do a reasonably good job, I think, at linking those changes to the specific aspects, the specific experiences that um, that people are describing to us. So, for example, um, when uh, when you know some of the simplest forms of practices like prayer, for example, uh, if when you pray, uh, uh, we did a study of nuns doing a practice called centering prayer, where they bring their attention, their focus on a particular prayer. So, when they're doing that. Um, their frontal lobe activity located by, behind the forehead tends to go up because the frontal lobe is typically involved in helping us to focus our attention. And so whether we're concentrating on uh, a math problem, whether we're concentrating on a recipe, when, whether we're concentrating on a prayer, we activate the frontal lobes. Uh, now, another area of our brain that seems to be particularly relevant here is the parietal lobe, and that's located in the back of the brain. And so this is an area that takes sensory information and helps us to create our sense of self. Well, you know, one of the most common experiences in these practices is a loss of the sense of self, 
which which is also something that incidentally I, I perceive in myself in that infinite doubt. There wasn't really a self and other, there was just the doubt. And so uh, the sense of self goes away. And when that, when that sense of self goes away, the parietal lobe activity, which normally turns on to give us our sense of self, quiets down, and then we begin to lose our sense of self. And, uh, and so, you know, then you get into all of the specifics of the different practices, and you mentioned the mediums, for example, and we can talk about that in a little bit more detail in a moment. Um, but, um, but yeah, basically, you know, it seems that, you know, it depends on what the person is doing and what they're perceiving and experiencing that has a lot to do with what the brain scans show. And the brain scans are usually designed to show activity levels in the brain areas that turn on or turn off. And we can see those differences and compare the different states to each other. So we compare a prayer state to a, a, a you know, resting state, or we maybe compare one type of meditation to another. And, uh, you know, really, you know, we've scanned four or 500 people doing all different kinds of practices from all different traditions. So it's very exciting to continue to see sort of how this overall network of brain structures uh, becomes activated. And, and again, what I like to say is that, you know, there's not one part of our brain, it really involves virtually all parts of our brain. So if there's a spiritual part of ourselves, it's the entire brain. And since uh, I'm in the Department of Integrative Medicine, we recognize the whole brain body connection. And so, uh, you know, not only do you think about something, but you feel it down in, in, in your body itself. And so it's really all of us, it's the whole, it's the sum total of, of all of who we are that is the spiritual part of who we are and enables us to have those experiences. I heard you say in an interview, um, you were asked what it was like when you first began scanning people in prayer meditation. And you said, well, it's a little bit like walking on the moon. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> because it was um, so exciting and so new. And so, yeah, yeah. yeah you know, I mean, it, it, you know, and it, not to be overly grandiose as I always say, but you know, I mean, when that brain, you have no idea what you're going to see. I mean, you have certain ideas right. based on what you think is happening or what you think might be going on. And, uh, and then you shove somebody in the scanner and you say, let's do, you know, such and such practice. And then here come these changes and you just don't really know exactly what you're going to see or if you're going to see anything at all. And, um, and so it's always exciting, you know, and we never really know exactly what we're going to do, what we're going to see. And, um, you know, and if we even design the study the right way. Yeah. To, to be able to show the changes that we're looking for. And uh, that's happened to us too. Sometimes we put somebody in and we, we inject them with a radioactive tracer that we hope is going to show something and nothing happens. You right, know? Right, right. And we got to figure out what's going on. So, so fascinating. Um, so I'd like to talk about going back to the Brazilian mediums um, and it kind of, it, well, it goes along with what you call the flow state. And um, you <clears throat> compared novice mediums, Brazilian, <laughs> compared right. to those that were very well trained, if you will, for not a better word. And um, you, you really found some differences. And then you went on to correlate that with, with like musicians, mathematicians, when any of us begin something new, but then we, so can you talk about that? Sure. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, part of it was uh, I, I had a colleague of mine who was from Brazil, and um, he was connected go. with, with a, uh, a community of people who, who did mediumship. And, um, and so he brought them up to our lab, and we did brain scans with them. In fact, I mean, with, with any of the studies that we do, you know, one of the big questions is always, who are we going to study? You know, who specifically are we going to study? So yeah. if we want to study nuns, 
you know, where are we going to get them from, you know? <laughs> um, and <laughs> right. uh, so, you know, there's always, there's always those kinds of questions, but the, he had, a, had a, a, a select group of people who he was able to bring up and that made it very easy to look at that. And, um, uh, and as you said, I mean, what was, what was interesting, well, like going back to what we were just talking about, you never know what you're going to see. Sometimes you see nothing. So um, when we did, what we did was we had each of them get into this trance state that was part of their mediumship state. Uh, and uh, in that state, they do a practice called psychography, where they, they uh, claim to be connected to the spirit world, and then they write down whatever they, you know, whatever they perceive the spirits are telling them to write down. And it's this kind of automatic writing uh, experience or writing practice, and then, you know, you can read what they've written. Uh, and so what we did was we compared the psychography state to a state of just normal writing. And that is always kind of an, you know, a larger kind of step back methodological thing that we have to think about, which is what are we going to compare to? Because we wanna, the goal is to find the spiritual piece to this. And so if I were to compare writing in psychography to just sitting there quietly, somebody could say, well, how do you know that's just not writing? You know, and so, uh, so we have to think about all the different aspects and elements of a practice, eyes open, eyes closed, reading, not reading, speaking, not speaking. And we try to match everything up with the exception of what is considered to be the spiritual piece to that. So, um, so in this case, again, we had them writing at baseline, whatever, you know, whatever they thought about the experiment and what we were doing with them. And then they, we had them doing the writing during the psychography uh, task. And then we actually, uh, we had uh, 10 of them all together. And when we just compared all of the data, the psychography to the regular writing, we actually didn't really see anything. And we didn't understand, you know, what was going on or why that was the case. And then we started to get into this discussion about, well, you know, what's happening? How are they doing it? What are they doing? Are there differences between different people? You know, when, when you look at the data, you can see how different people are, are, are going in different directions and things like that. And I said, well, you know, it's interesting because there's like the, there's like five of them who are doing one thing, and then there's another five that are doing something kind of different, at least as far as their brain goes. So we said, well, you know, what is there something going on? Does that t tell us something about them? And uh, and it is always interesting when you see something on a scan, and then you ask a question, and then people have an answer that helps to put everything into the right perspective. Exactly. So I said, well, you know, is there something weird or not weird, but different about these five people compared to the other five people? And they said, oh, well, yes, actually, you know, these five people are highly proficient. They've been doing this for, you know, more than 10, 15 years. They do it, you know, basically on a daily basis. Whereas the other five people have really only kind of recently learned how to do it. They've been doing it for a few years. Um, and so, you know, they're, they're relatively novice compared to the more experienced people. And then all of a sudden that just made so much sense well, to us. And then we said, oh, well, you know, now let's look at the, the, them separated. And that's where we saw the consistencies of what was going on in their brains. And what was particularly intriguing to us, um, you know, like for example, I mentioned the parietal lobe going down. Um, well, another area that went down in the experience people were the frontal lobes. And, uh, and this is something that we have seen in a variety of practices where the person feels not as if they are purposely doing something like we were talking about, like purposely saying a prayer, but that they're basically letting it happen to them, whatever the it is. In this case, the spirits kind of connecting with them. And so what we found was, was that for the people who were highly experienced, they had a decrease in their frontal lobes, a decrease in their parietal lobes that were part of this experience. Now in the, um, in the novices, we actually saw the opposite. We actually saw an increase 
uh, in the frontal lobes in particular, and to a certain extent in the parietal lobes as well. So you say, well, then are they even doing the same thing? And that was when I started to talk a little bit about, you know, the music concept. Right. When you first learn how to play the piano, for example, um, you have to be very purposeful in it. Now you can still play music, but you're concentrating and you have to play it very carefully and you have to make sure you hit all the right notes. But the end result is music. Um, But most likely you're going to be activating your frontal lobes because you are concentrating on what you're doing. When you get to be really proficient at playing music, you do it in an almost automatic way. You don't have to think about what notes to do. You just, your hands literally know what they're doing. And so now you're still making music, you know, so the end result is making music, but you're doing it in a completely different way. And, and the research has shown that in highly experienced musicians, especially when they're in this kind of flow state, as you mentioned, in this kind of, uh, you know, when they're just kind of, uh, you know, doing whatever comes to them and, impro- you know, improvising whatever the music they want to play, their, their frontal lobe activity does go down as well. So um, it was interesting because I think it, it tells us something about um, how people change over time, the, the notion of a, of, a, of a practice effect or a learning curve or whatever. Uh, and it, it, you know, it all sort of fell into place and made sense. So they're all still doing the psychography. They're all making the music, so to speak, but they do it in slightly different kinds of ways with their brain. And some people become you know, better and better at entering into those trance states and having those experiences. Right. It reminds me, um, I interviewed Dr. Tony Sicoria, and he had a profound near-death experience and came back with this just um, desire um, to listen to and eventually play classical music. And he had never, you know, really been interested before. He was kind of a rock and roll guy. And so he started studying it and worked really, really hard in the novice stage. But then as he became more, more efficient or competent, um, he just said the music is just downloaded from heaven. And he also mentioned that Mozart and some of the other greats have have said exactly the same thing. So talking about, you know, being in the flow state. It's just so, it's just such great stuff. How does this, how is this, I know you've been doing this like practically your whole life. But how does this change the way you walk in your life and, and also um, being a father? Well, um, that's a good question. Um, you, you know, again, part of it, I think for me, th- this really has been this kind of combined spiritual and scientific journey. And, and I guess behind that is to me the most fundamental thing of all, which is to ask questions um, and to keep asking questions. And so uh, whether it's a scientific question or a spiritual question or a political question, you know, it's always, you know, are we sure of what we're thinking about? Um, Is there another way of thinking about it? Is there a better way of thinking about it? Uh, Are there things that we can learn? Are there ways that we can incorporate ideas into our lives and so forth? And so for me, um, you know, asking questions and continuing to ask questions and, and striving to learn and strive, you know, that, that to me is kind of the fundamental basis of life. And so when it does come to my child, uh, my daughter, um, uh, you know, who's now 20, um, you know, part of what I hope that I have ingrained within her is an openness to ask questions, a, a, a desire to explore the world in different ways. And, and, and you had mentioned too about, you know, how do we use this information to teach our children uh, and, and I do hope that part of that goal is to 
get people to be more compassionate about others, um, to, to ask the questions. Uh, you know, it's fine to have a belief. Uh, you know, it's fine to say I am, you know, I, I am Catholic or I am Republican or whatever, but, um, but to recognize that that isn't necessarily the only answer. And, um, and that there can, and, and it may not even be the only answer for you. You might, you know, feel one way at one point in your life and, and change dramatically. You know, we, we know we uh, did a whole survey of people's spiritual experiences. And, you know, there were people who went all kind of cockamamie paths and, you know, were raised Catholic and then dabbled in Buddhism and then married a, somebody who was Jewish and converted to Judaism. And then later in their life, they decided to become, you know, an atheist. I mean, <laughs> Uh, you know, so um, it, it's quite fascinating to see, you know, how, how people go. And, um, but I, I think, you know, that to me is, is always, uh, you know, um, asking people, to, uh, you know, as you go, you know, it's, I guess, the Socratic method, you know, and, and what Socrates tried to do is just keep asking the questions and, um, and saying, you know, well, you know, why, why do you feel the way you do? And, and have you thought about this? Or here's an alternative or, um, and, and I think the more open all of us are, the more understanding and compassionate we are with others. And, um, and I, hopefully that, that makes our interpersonal relationships better, our friendships better, our work relationships better. Uh, and, uh, you know, to be overly optimistic, you know, hopefully it'll help to bring uh, the world together and the country together in, in a way that we desperately need. <laughs> Thank you so much, Andrew. And I think this is a great time to take a break and I'm excited to have you can have you continue this conversation next week and for those of you listeners that would like to contact Dr. Newberg you can go to his website Andrew Newberg n-e-w-b-e-r-g dot com thank you for listening thank you so much for listening in today If you want to learn more about the show, you can find us at interviewswithinnocence.com and on Facebook or Instagram at interviewswithinnocence. Please write me a message. Tell me what you liked and let me know what else you would like to hear. I would love to hear from you. And if you liked what you heard, please leave us an iTunes rating and review. It helps other listeners find the show. Thank you. Thank you.